Section 6 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumont. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Russell Newton. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumont. Section 6. We have passed quickly over the interval between the first meeting of Monsieur de Lamont and Derue, and the moment when the victims fell into the trap. We might easily have invented long conversations and episodes which would have brought Derue profound hypocrisy into greater relief. But the reader now knows all that we care to show him. We have purposely lingered in our narration in the endeavor to explain the perversities of this mysterious organization. We have overloaded it with all the facts which seem to throw any light on this somber character. But now, after these long preparations, the drama opens, the scenes become rapid and lifelike. Events, long impeded, accumulate and pass quickly before us, the action is connected, and hastens to an end. We shall see Derue like an unwearied Proteus, changing names, costumes, language, multiplying himself in many forms, scattering deceptions and lies from one end of France to the other. And finally, after so many efforts, such prodigies of calculation and activity end by wrecking himself against a corpse. The letter written at Bizancou arrived at Paris the morning of 14th of December. In the course of the day, an unknown man presented himself at the hotel where Madame de Lamotte and her son had stayed before and inquired what rooms were vacant. There were four, and he engaged them for a certain Dumoulin, who had arrived that morning from Bordeaux, and who had passed through Paris in order to meet, at some little distance, relations who would return with him. A part of the rent was paid in advance, and it was expressly stipulated that until his return the rooms should not be let to anyone, as the aforesaid Dumoulin might return with his family and require them at any moment. The same person went to other hotels in the neighborhood and engaged vacant rooms, sometimes for a stranger he expected, sometimes for friends whom he could not accommodate himself. At about three o'clock, the place de Greve was full of people, thousands of heads crowded the windows of the surrounding houses. A parricide was to pay the penalty of his crime, a crime committed under atrocious circumstances with an unheard-of refinement of barbarity. The punishment corresponded to the crime. The wretched man was broken on the wheel. The most complete and terrible silence prevailed in the multitude eager for ghastly emotions. Three times already had been heard the heavy thud of the instrument which broke the victim's limbs, and a loud cry escaped the sufferer which made all who heard it shudder with horror. One man only, who in spite of his efforts could not get through the crowd and cross the square, remained unmoved, and, looking contemptuously toward the criminal, muttered, Idiot! He was unable to deceive anyone. A few moments later, the flames began to rise from the funeral pyre, the crowd began to move, and the man was able to make his way through and reach one of the streets leading out of the square. The sky was overcast, and the gray daylight hardly penetrated the narrow line, hideous and gloomy as the name it bore, in which only a few years ago, still wound like a long serpent through the mire of this quarter. Just then it was deserted, owing to the attraction of the execution close by. The man who had just left the square proceeded slowly, attentively reading all the inscriptions on the doors. He stopped at number 75, where on the threshold of a shop sat a stout woman busily knitting, over whom one read in big yellow letters, Widow Messon. He saluted the woman and asked, Is there not a cellar to let in this house? There is, master, answered the widow. Can I speak to the owner? And that is myself, by your leave. Will you show me the cellar? 
I'm a provincial wine merchant. My business often brings me to Paris, and I want a cellar where I could deposit wine, which I sell on commission. They went down together. After examining the place and ascertaining that it was not too damp for the expensive wine which he wished to leave there, the man agreed about the rent, paid the first term in advance, and was entered on the widow Masson's books under the name of Ducaudray. It is hardly necessary to remark that it should have been Derue. When he returned home in the evening, his wife told him that a large box had arrived. It is all right, he said. The carpenter from whom I ordered it is a man of his word. Then he supped and caressed his children. The next day being Sunday, he received the communion to the great edification of the devout people of the neighborhood. On Monday, the 16th, Madame de Lamont and Edouard, descending from the Montreux coach, were met by Derue and his wife. Did my husband write to you, Monsieur Derue? inquired Madame de Lamont. Yes, Madame, two days ago, and I have arranged our dwelling for your reception. What? But did not Monsieur de Lamont ask you to engage the rooms I have had before at the Hotel de France? He did not say so, and if that was your idea, I trust you will change it. Do not deprive me of the pleasure of offering you the hospitality which for so long I have accepted from you. Your room is quite ready. Also, one for this dear boy. And so saying, he took Edward's hands. And I'm sure if you ask his opinion, he will say you had better be content to stay with me. Undoubtedly, said the boy, and I do not see why there need be any hesitation between friends. Whether by accident or secret presentiment, or because she foresaw a possibility of business discussions between them, Madame de Lamotte objected to this arrangement. Derue, having a business appointment which he was bound to keep, desired his wife to accompany the Lamottes to the Hotel de France, and in case of their not being able to find rooms there, mentioned three others as the only ones in the quarter where they could be comfortably accommodated. Two hours later, Madame de Lamotte and her son returned to his house in the Rue Beaubourg. The house, which Derue occupied, stood opposite the Rue de Menorier, and was pulled down quite lately to make way for the Rue Rambuteau. In 1776 it was one of the finest houses of the Rue Beaubourg, and it required a certain income to be able to live there, the rents being tolerably high. A large arched doorway gave admittance to a passage lighted at the other end by a small court, on the far side of which was the shop into which Madame de Lamotte had been taken on the occasion of the accident. The house staircase was to the right of the passage, and the Derue dwelling on the entresol. The first room, lighted by a window looking into the court, was used as a dining room, and led into a simply furnished sitting room, such as was generally found among the bourgeois and tradespeople of this period. To the right of the sitting room was a large closet, which could serve as a small study or could hold a bed. To the left was a door opening into the Derue bedroom, which had been prepared for Madame de Lamotte. Madame Derue would occupy one of the two beds which stood in the alcove. Derue had a bed made up in the sitting room, and Edouard was accommodated in the little study. Nothing particular happened during the first few days which followed the Lamotte's arrival. They had not come to Paris only on account of the Bizon-Souf affairs. Edouard was nearly sixteen, and after much hesitation his parents had decided on placing him in some school where his hitherto neglected education might receive more attention. Derue undertook to find a capable tutor, in whose house the boy would be brought up in the religious feeling which the cure of Buzon and his own exhortations had already tended to develop. These proceedings, added to Madame de Lamotte's endeavors to collect various sums due her husband, took some time. Perhaps, when on the point of executing a terrible crime, Derue tried to postpone the final moment, although, considering his character, this seems unlikely, for one cannot do him the honor of crediting him with a single moment of remorse, doubt, or pity. Far from it, it appears from all the information which can be gathered that Derue, faithful to his own traditions, 
was simply experimenting on his unfortunate guests, for no sooner were they in his house than both began to complain of constant nausea, which they had never suffered from before. While he thus ascertained the strength of their constitution, he was able, knowing the cause of the malady, to give them relief, so that Madame de Lamotte, although she grew daily weaker, had so much confidence in him as to think it unnecessary to call in a doctor. Fearing to alarm her husband, she never mentioned her sufferings, and her letters only spoke of the care and kind attention which she received. On the 15th of January, 1777, Edouard was placed in a school in the Rue de l'Homme Arme. His mother never saw him again. She went out once more to place her husband's power of attorney with the lawyer in the Rue des Pons. On her return, she felt so weak and broken down that she was obliged to go to bed and remain there for several days. On January 29th, the unfortunate lady had risen and was sitting near the window which overlooked the deserted Rue de Montreuil, where the clouds of snow were drifting before the wind. Who can guess the sad thoughts which may have possessed her? All around, dark, cold, and silent, tending to produce painful depression and involuntary dread. To escape the gloomy ideas which besieged her, her mind went back to the smiling times of her youth and marriage. She recalled the time when, alone at Bizon during her husband's enforced absences, she wandered with her child in the cool and shaded walks of the park, and set out in the evening, inhaling the scent of flowers and listening to the murmur of the water, or the sound of the whispering breeze in the leaves. Then, coming back from these sweet recollections to reality, she shed tears and called on her husband and son. So deep was her reverie that she did not hear the room door open, did not perceive that darkness had come on. The light of a candle, dispersing the shadows, made her start. She turned her head and saw Derue coming towards her. He smiled, and she made an effort to keep back the tears which were shining in her eyes and to appear calm. "'I am afraid I disturb you,' he said. "'I came to ask a favor, madame.' "'What is it, Monsieur Derue?' she inquired. "'Will you allow me to have a large chest brought into this room? I ought to pack some valuable things in it which are in my charge, and you are now in this cupboard. I am afraid it will be in your way.' Is it not your own house, and is it not rather I who am in the way and a cause of trouble? Pray, have it brought in, and try to forget that I am here. You are most kind to me, but I wish I could spare you all this trouble and that I were fit to go back to Bisson. I had a letter from my husband yesterday. We will talk about that presently, if you wish it, said Derue. I will go and fetch the servant to help me carry in this chest. I have put it off hitherto, but it really must be sent in three days." He went away and returned in a few minutes. The chest was carried in and placed before the cupboard at the foot of the bed. Alas, the poor lady little thought it was her own coffin which stood before her. The maid withdrew, and Derue assisted Madame de Lamotte to a seat near the fire which he revived with more fuel. He sat down opposite to her, and by the feeble light of the candle, placed on a small table between them, could contemplate at leisure the ravages wrought by poison on her wasted features. "'I saw your son today,' he said. He complains that you neglect him, and have not seen him for twelve days. He does not know you have been ill, nor did I tell him. The dear boy, he loves you so tenderly. And I also long to see him. My friend, I cannot tell you what terrible presentiments beset me. It seems as if I were threatened with some great misfortune. And just now, when you came in, I could think only of death. What is the cause of this languor and weakness? It is surely no temporary ailment. Tell me the truth. Am I not dreadfully altered? And do you not think my husband will be shocked when he sees me like this? You are unnecessarily anxious, replied Derue. It is rather a failing of yours. Did I not see you last year tormenting yourself about Edward's health when he was not even thinking of being ill? I am not so soon alarmed, 
My own old profession and that of chemistry, which I studied in my youth, have given me some acquaintance with medicine. I have frequently been consulted and have prescribed for patients whose condition was supposed to be desperate, and I can assure you I have never seen a better and stronger constitution than yours. Try to calm yourself, and do not call up chimeras. Because a mind at ease is the greatest enemy of illness. This depression will pass, and then you will regain your strength. May God grant it, for I feel weaker every day. We still have some business to transact together. The notary at Bouvay writes that the difficulties which prevented his paying over the inheritance of my wife's relation, Monsieur Duplessis, have mostly disappeared. I have a hundred thousand livres at my disposal, that is to say, at yours, and in the month at latest I shall be able to pay off my debt. You ask me to be sincere, he continued with a tinge of reproachful irony. Be sincere in your turn, madam, and acknowledge that you and your husband have both felt uneasy, and that the delays I have been obliged to ask for have not seemed very encouraging to you. It is true, she replied, but we never questioned your good faith. And you were right. One is not always able to carry out one's intentions. Events can always upset our calculations. But what really is in our power is the desire to do right, to be honest. And I can say that I never intentionally wronged anyone. And now I am happy in being able to fulfill my promises to you. I trust when I am the owner of Bison Souf, you will not feel obliged to leave it. Thank you. I should like to come occasionally, for all my happy recollections are connected with it. Is it necessary for me to accompany you to Bouvet? Why should you not? The change would do you good. She looked up at him and smiled sadly. I am not in a fit state to undertake it. Not if you imagine that you are unable, certainly. Come, have you any confidence in me? The most complete confidence, as you know. Very well, then. Trust to my care. This very evening I will prepare a draught for you to take tomorrow morning, and I will even now fix the duration of this terrible malady which frightens you so much. In two days I shall fetch Edward from his school to celebrate the beginning of your convalescence, and we will start at latest on February 1st. You are astonished at what I say, but you shall see if I am not a good doctor, and much cleverer than many who pass for such merely because they have obtained a diploma. Then, doctor, I will place myself in your hands. Remember what I say. You will leave this on February 1st. To begin this cure, can you ensure my sleeping tonight? Certainly. I'll go now and send my wife to you. She'll bring a draught, which you must promise to take. I will exactly follow your prescriptions. Good night, my friend. Good night, madame, and take courage. And bowing low, he left the room. The rest of the evening was spent in preparing the fatal medicine. The next morning, an hour or two after Madame de Lamotte had swallowed it, the maid who had given it to her came and told Derue the invalid was sleeping very heavily and snoring, and asked if she ought to be awoke. He went into the room, and opening the curtains approached the bed. He listened for some time, and recognized that the supposed snoring was really the death rattle. He sent the servant off into the country with a letter to one of his friends, telling her not to return until the Monday following, February 3rd. He also sent away his wife on some unknown pretext, and remained alone with his victim. So terrible a situation ought to have troubled the mind of the most hardened criminal. A man familiar with murder and accustomed to shed blood might have felt his heart sink, and, in the absence of pity, might have experienced disgust at the sight of this prolonged and useless torture. But Derues, calm and easy, as if unconscious of evil, sat coolly beside the bed, as any doctor might have done. From time to time he felt the slackening pulse and looked at the glassy and sightless eyes which turned in their orbits, and he saw without terror the approach of night, which rendered this awful tete-a-tete -tete even more horrible. 
The most profound silence reigned in the house, the street was deserted, and the only sound heard was caused by an icy rain mixed with snow driven against the glass and occasionally the howl of the wind, which penetrated the chimney and scattered the ashes. A single candle placed behind the curtains lighted this dismal scene, and the irregular flicker of its flame cast weird reflections and dancing shadows on the walls of the alcove. There came a lull in the wind, the rain ceased, and during this instant of calm someone knocked, at first gently, and then sharply at the outer door. Derude dropped the dying woman's hand and bent forward to listen. The knock was repeated, and he grew pale. He threw the sheet, as if it were a shroud, over his victim's head, drew the curtains of the alcove, and went to the door. "'Who is there?' he required. "'Open, Monsieur Derue,' said a voice, whom he recognized as that of a woman of Chartres whose affairs he had managed, and who had entrusted him with sundry deeds in order that he might receive the money due to her. This woman had begun to entertain doubts as to Derue's honesty, and as she was leaving Paris the next day had resolved to get the papers out of his hands. "'Open the door,' she repeated. "'Don't you know my voice?' I am sorry I cannot let you in. My servant is out. She has taken the key and locked the door outside. You must let me in, the woman continued. It is absolutely necessary I should speak to you. Come tomorrow. I leave Paris tomorrow, and I must have those papers tonight. He again refused, but she spoke firmly and decidedly. I must come in. The porter said you were all out, but from the Rue de Montrier I could see light in your room. My brother is with me, and I left him below. I shall call him if you don't open the door. Come in, then, said Derue. Your papers are in the sitting room. Wait here, and I will fetch them. The woman looked at him and took his hand. Heavens, how pale you are! What is the matter? Nothing is the matter. Will you wait here? But she would not release his arm, and followed him into the sitting room, where Derue began to seek hurriedly among the various papers which covered a table. Here they are, he said. Now you can go. Really, said the woman, examining her deeds carefully. Never yet did I see you in such a hurry to give up things which don't belong to you. But do hold that candle steadily. Your hand is shaking so that I cannot see to read. At that moment, the silence which prevailed all round was broken by a cry of anguish, a long groan proceeding from the chamber to the right of the sitting room. What is that? cried the woman. Surely it is a dying person. The sense of the danger which threatened made Derue pull himself together. Do not be alarmed, he said. My wife has been seized with a violent fever. She is quite delirious now, and that is why I told the porter to let no one come up. But the groans in the next room continued, and the unwelcome visitor, overcome by terror, which she could neither surmount nor explain, took a hasty leave, and descended the staircase with all possible rapidity. As soon as he could close the door, Derue returned to the bedroom. Nature frequently collects all her expiring strength at the last moment of existence. The unhappy lady struggled beneath her coverings. The agony she suffered had given her a convulsive energy, and inarticulate sounds proceeded from her mouth. Derue approached and held her on the bed. She sank back on the pillow, shuddering convulsively, her hands plucking and twisting the sheets, her teeth chattering and biting the loose hair which fell over her face and shoulders. "'Water! Water!' she cried, and then, "'Edward! My husband! Edward! Is it you?' Then, rising with the last effort, she seized her murderer by the arm, repeating, "'Edward! Oh!' and then fell heavily, dragging Derue down with her. His face was against hers. He raised his head, but the dying hand, clenched in agony, had closed upon him like a vice. The icy fingers seemed made of iron and could not be opened, as though the victim had seized on her assassin as a prey and clung to the proof of his crime." 
Derue at last freed himself, and putting his hand on her heart, "'It is over,' he remarked. "'She has been a long time about it. What o'clock is it? Nine? She has struggled against death for twelve hours.' While the limbs still retained a little warmth, he drew the feet together, crossed the hands on the breast, and placed the body in the chest. When he had locked it up, he remade the bed, undressed himself, and slept comfortably in the other one. End of section 6